You're listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. This week, we continue with our coverage of The Challenge from Beyond with the Live and Lead show that we did back on April 4th. For this thing was nothing human, nothing of Earth, nothing even of man's myths and dreams. It was a gigantic, pale gray worm or centipede, as large around as a man and twice as long, with a disc-like, apparently eyeless, cilia-fringed head bearing a purple central orifice. It glided on its rear pairs of legs, with its forepart raised vertically, the legs, or at least two pairs of them, serving as arms. Along its spinal ridge was a curious purple comb, and a fan-shaped tail of some gray membrane ended its grotesque bulk. There was a ring of flexible red spikes about its neck, and from the twistings of these came clicking, twanging sounds in measured, deliberate rhythms. Here, indeed, was outre nightmare at its height, capricious fantasy at its apex. But even this vision of delirium was not what caused George Campbell to lapse a third time into unconsciousness. (laughs) It took one more thing, one final unbearable touch to do that. As the nameless worm advanced with its glistening box, the reclining man caught in the mirror-like surface a glimpse of what should have been his own body. Yet, horribly verifying his disordered and unfamiliar sensations, it was not his own body at all that he saw reflected in the burnished metal. It was, instead, the loathsome pale gray bulk of one of the great centipedes. Yes. He is the, he's a worm, he's in the worm body. He's in the worm body. Oh my God. And, and that's how we conclude <laughs> the Lovecraft section of yes. the story. Uh, so you guys can all leave. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we covered the Lovecraft. Uh, th- this is worth the price of admission right here though. If you read the story and you get to this point, this yeah. is one of the greatest moments in Well, in all I mean, now just keep in, keep in mind what's going on. This guy is terrified. Barely yeah. deal with the situation. It's like your worst nightmare come to life, and he describes it as a nightmare yeah. five or six times. Yes, yeah. just full of fear, nightmarish, so awful. scared. I keep thinking of like night terrors where, where you, you just can't move and you're just so scared. I don't even need to think of that though. If I woke up and I was in a worm body, absolutely, I would crap something. I don't have pants, but whatever garments down there. So he's having a really hard time with it. And then we get into the Robert E. Howard portion of the story. Now you'll know Robert E. Robert e. Howard is the creator of Conan the Barbarian, uh, Call the Conqueror, Brand a number of very, you know, yeah. meaty... Solomon Kane, just a lot of hardcore guys. He, he likes the word fuse a lot, you know, <laughs> really meaty fuse, musculature, he likes all that stuff. So he's going to pick up the, uh, the narrative of this tentative geologist who's scared of his new worm body. Terrible. <laughs> From that final lap of senselessness, he emerged with a full understanding of his situation. His mind was imprisoned in the body of a frightful native of an alien planet, while somewhere on the other side of the universe, his own body was housing the monster's personality. He fought down an unreasoning horror. Judged from a cosmic standpoint, why should his metamorphosis horrify him? Life and consciousness were the only realities in the universe. Form was unimportant. His present body was hideous only according to terrestrial standards. Fear and revulsion were drowned in the excitement of titanic adventure. (laughs) 
What was his former body but a cloak? Eventually he'd be cast off in death anyway. He had no sentimental illusions about the life from which he had been exiled. What had it ever given him save toil, poverty, continual frustration, and repression? If this life before him offered no more, at least it offered no less. Intuition told him it offered more. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> awesome. A complete turnaround. Yeah, totally. It's like shifting accidentally from first to fourth. It's like, whoa. <laughs> but I, I have to say, being a fan of Lovecraft and reading so many stories, to have this happen, it sort of got me really excited. Well, the story, yeah. Yeah. Like, he was, he's going, he, he's going, wait a minute. This, I'm not at a disadvantage here. This isn't that horrible. This is really Awesome! This is amazing! Yeah, he did that in about 35 words. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Then he just, yeah, whatever, there's no need for me to be scared at all. No. No, no problem. And he thinks, you know, what about Earth? I, uh, there's a worm guy that's in the, on Earth, and, you know, he's probably going to cause some problems. But he's in my body on yeah, Earth. Exactly. He, might, he might screw the whole thing up and exterminate the whole human race. But then he goes, yeah, who cares about Earth? Yeah. Let him walk the Earth, slaying and destroying as he would. Earth and its races no longer had any meaning to George Campbell. <laughs> there, he, there he had been one of a billion non-entities fixed in place by a mountainous accumulation of conventions, laws, and manners, doomed to live and die in his sordid niche. But in one blind bound, he had soared above the commonplace. This was not death, but rebirth. The birth of a full-grown mentality with a newfound freedom that made little of physical captivity on Yakub. We started. Yakub. It was the name of this planet, but how had he known? <laughs> Another cell cluster. Yep. <laughs> Something in the brain of this alien. Yes. Now this information. Is, this is one of the cool things that these aliens didn't anticipate is how awesome humans are. Yeah. Well, that's what you got out of it. The first thing I thought was. This planet is, if this, if, if when you go to the worm body, you will suddenly know everything they know, how, how did this not happen to them all the time? Well, and this is, this is what it is. Humans are the best. <laughs> they are awesome. That they can get into a brain and take the residual information that's in that brain, access it, and use it to their own ends. I've met a few humans and I just don't sign up for that. <laughs> but he does start to get memories off the body that he's inhabiting, and it's the planet Yuku. Yuku. And uh, he knows the body that he's in. Toth. Yeah, Toth. He knows his own name, and he knows yeah. the names of the, of the other worm guys that he's remembered. Yeah, so right. he's with uh, Yuk, the Supreme Lord of Science. Yeah. <laughs> That's the guy that walked in. Man, the Supreme Lord of Science. I wish we gave those titles. Though. Yeah. So. So, uh, I was gonna say, he's in the front row. <laughs> right there. Uh, so, so you, the Supreme Lord of Science, is, he's, he doesn't understand these humans, these amazing, amazing humans that can do pretty much anything. So he's just gonna walk over and kind of check out this body and see what's up. But since we've got George yeah. in, a, in, in this body who is human and awesome, he sees a scalpel, which would normally, it's just a tool, it's not dangerous. Yeah. Not to them. Not they to them. These people who, by the way, are going to planets and eradicating all species on them. Yes. Little sharp pieces of metal, or the, that doesn't bother them at all. No. How could somebody use that to hurt me? Well, he does. Yes. <laughs> he guts the Supreme Lord. He just stabs him. And can't, like, what? That's awesome. It's sort of like one of those Halloween sequels. I remember they had uh, Michael Myers was in a coma or something like that for like 10 years. 
and they get him in an ambulance because they're transferring him somewhere, and the first thing he does is wake up and shove his thumb through somebody's head. Yes. <laughs> and how can he do that as muscles of an action? It's the same kind of thing. He's never actually moved in this body before. No. He just gets up and starts stabbing. <laughs> You're forgetting something, Chad. <laughs> he's human. That's right. I, I can't forget that he's it human. It comes naturally. Yes. Exactly. So George, he once he guts the Supreme Lord of Science, uh -huh. he, he remembers that there is this thing in the, in the center of the, their city, which is this orb. And this orb is an intelligence that is worshipped by these people, or these worm people. And he thinks, wait a minute, they don't touch it because they're afraid of it. And I'm human. I'm not afraid of anything. So I'm because gonna, I've never met humans who believe in crazy religious of things. Course, yeah. or, uh, Why would they believe this? It's stupid to believe this. A completely rational species we are. So yes. for him, the kind of superstition is ridiculous. So he, taking his worm memory, knows how to go through the city, goes into the temple where this orb is. There is a high priest there. He stabs and guts him too, kills him, <laughs> and then takes takes the orb, and he becomes a god himself. Yes. He climbs up on the altar, uh, he takes the globe, and, yeah. and uh, he's going to rule them all. Rule the entire empire. And that concludes Robert E. Howard's section of the story. Good job, buddy. Good job. Now, yeah, I really... Now, it's such a huge uh, dichotomy to Lovecraft stuff, because, you know, with, with Lovecraft, everything is humans are insignificant, and, and they're nothing, and they're powerless. And I mean, that's where the, the horror comes from. You know, that's, yeah. that's why I love Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. But Because you feel insignificant. No, I mean, I like it too. Yeah, no, it's, it's scary, it's good. Mm -hmm. But I have to say that having Robert E. Howard come in and just sort of yeah. turn it on its end and make it the complete opposite, which is really against the, the spirit of the Round Robin, as, much, as amusing as I found it, yeah. it's not really what one should do. No, and I wonder what Lovecraft thought of it. Yeah. I, Lovecraft had a good sense of humor. And liked Robert E. Howard. Yeah, he liked Robert E. Howard a lot. And they, they wrote, uh, Lovecraft would take things from Howard's stories, and Howard's would take things from Lovecraft's mm -hmm. stories. So, I mean, they were good correspondence friends, and they really respected each other's work. Both near their deaths, I believe, at this point. Well, yeah, this is only a year before Robert E. Howard commits suicide. And then Lovecraft dies uh, two two years later. Yeah, two years. Not like just one year. Later. One year later. Yeah, one yeah. year. Yeah. So just it, wanted to bring the room down. Yeah, please. <laughs> just having too much fun. Well, uh, well, but before we go on to sure. the, the last part, the fact that we are uh, connected to the internet and people are listening to us live, which I completely forgot about. Uh, let's <laughs> let's check in with the internet and see if anybody uh, has anything interesting to say, Paul. Okay, well, first of all, there's a nice suggestion that uh, maybe you ought to invest in a Lovecraft brand of smelling salts for all those painting things. Ah, that would be nice. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Idea there. Yeah. And um, people are loving Andrew's readings, of course. Oh, but also, we are a, lot, a lot of praise for Corin on the music production. Yeah. Really yeah. I, I felt really strong hearing the comment too. That was music exactly. going on there. Maybe want to run around. I want to have a sword. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So the next, the next part is where poor Frank Belknap Long has to somehow wrap these things together and bring it to a close. Yeah. And he uh, he starts alternating between the two scenes. He's yeah. got the, uh, the possessed body on Earth, which has the worm guy's consciousness in it, and then the worm body on 
Yuku, which has the human in it. So we know that the body of George gets up and yeah, like a zombie staggers around the Canadian woods. Right. Yeah. Which I, they say there's a great. It says uh, it, it, with the, he was weaving between the trees of earth in an attitude that suggested the awkward loping of a werebeast. Oh right, that's a good cultural right. touchstone because everybody knows what a werebeast, sure. how they lope. Oh yeah, werebeast, they do lope awkwardly. It's really embarrassing. Yeah, they really do. <laughs> Not good lopers like those zombies. It's just. Ugh. But it goes. It goes from that, and then it cuts back to. To Yuko, where where George is just ruling the galaxy, and they're all worshiping him. And oh yeah, what a, an arc this guy has! Like he goes and he grabs the orb, and he goes, "I'm God now," and everybody goes, "Okay." Yep, <laughs> they're they're on board. Well, he's human. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the hero's journey done. And, but the worm in the body manages to kind of well, he he becomes sort of this feral beast because being being an alien body, he can't deal with what the human mind deals with, how we repress all of our primal, uh, mm -hmm. violent desires that we all have underneath us. And so he can't control it, and he just turns into this raving beast, like he attacks a fox, mm -hmm. and then it just goes crazy, grows hair on his face, and his skin turns kind of black. Yeah, I think that's one of those things. Well, I grow hair on my face. <laughs> but I think in an accelerated fashion. Okay. Uh, just, just a mustache? Human! <laughs> <laughs> It would be good. Uh, so, they, and they cut back and forth, cut back to just how amazing George is, how the worms totally worship him, how he's totally yeah. whipped this empire into shape. He's made them a little even more benevolent. He's like kind of oh. bettered them as well. Uh, I kind of tuned out at this part of the story. So. <laughs> okay. And then the human body that had the worm in it is dead, and a trapper finds his, his corpse. Right. And it looks all mangled and weird and stuff because it's been dealing with the worm stuff. And, and it's floating in some water. It's floating in some water, yes. By the campsite. And this is the conclusion of the story. He who sought your body in the abysses of time will occupy an unresponsive tenement, said the Red God. No spawn of Yakub can control the body of a human. On all earth, living creatures rend one another and feast with unutterable cruelty on their kith and kin. No worm mind can control a bestial man-body when it yearns to raven. Only man-minds, instinctively conditioned through the course of 10,000 generations, can keep the human instincts in thrall. Your body will destroy itself on Earth, seeking the blood of its animal kin, seeking the cool water where it can wallow at its ease, seeking eventually destruction, for the death instinct is more powerful in it than the instincts of life and it will destroy itself in seeking to return to the slime from which it sprang. Thus spoke the round red god of Yakub in a far-off segment of the space-time continuum to George Campbell as the latter, with all human desire purged away, sat on a throne and ruled an empire of worms more wisely, kindly, and benevolently than any man of Earth had ever ruled an empire of men. And that's the end of the story. That's it. <laughs> so we can get some more background on these authors. What did, what did you guys think? Uh, a merit. I I I have never I've never read I've never actually read an A merit story, but I have read 
a letter to the editor of Weird Tales mm -hmm. about an A Merritt story. And I thought, I've always found this quote, it's from the, the Irie, which was the letters to the editor column of Weird Tales. I've always found this quote to be a very, very funny glimpse into what A Merritt's stories must have been like. Yeah, the quote is, Every summer when it gets hot, I have had dreams of going to Alaska. Does going to Alaska do to everyone what it seems to have done to A. Merritt, who wrote that most intriguing serial about the golden pygmies and the leeches and the octopus who was tied to the bedposts? <laughs> if so, if so, I think he ought to get a commission from a travel bureau because countless adventure-starved people will probably be inquiring the railroad station you get off at to reach the mysterious Shadow Valley. Really, I think it was a swell story, and I'm wondering when his next piece starts in your magazine. I hope it will be full of horror and chills and monsters waiting to sneak up on the reader, because we who live in Chicago live an uneventful life now that Al Capone is in jail. <laughs> wow. I've always loved that quote. I gotta find out about that octopus tied to the bedpost. Uh, yeah, and anybody who can tie an octopus to the bedpost is, is pretty good, man. Anybody listening online or anybody who hears the show in the future, if you have any idea what that story is. Does anybody mm -hmm. ever hear about that story? Would that, no? Yeah. <laughs> no, A. Merritt, you know, whatever his writing may have been like, he was apparently, uh, uh, I guess he was, um, he made a, he, he wrote pulp stories on the side. His main job was a, a journalist, like a regular newspaper journalist, and apparently he was incredibly successful. And he's sort of, uh, I, I, he seems to me to be like a Lovecraftian protagonist. He's a guy who, you know, travels the world, has adventures, writes pulp stories on the side, you know, makes a lot of money, collects, apparently had a huge library of occult books, and he was, he was like a character from a pulp story. Yeah, he was like Bruce Wayne or something. <laughs> He was, he, he was the editor of the American Weekly, which was uh, like an insert in all the Hearst uh, newspapers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that was kind of where he got his job. And H.P. Lovecraft totally dug his novelette of The Moon Pool, but he later on expanded it into a novel, and then Lovecraft said that was terrible. <laughs> that he thought the short version of it was way, way better. And, uh, oh, they actually met in person on uh, January 8, 1934. Merritt took Lovecraft out to dinner at the Players Club in, uh, <laughs> yeah, in Gramercy Park. In Vegas? What? In New York. In New York. And, uh... Lovecraft at the Players Club. Huh? Yeah. That's pretty cool. And, well, because Merritt got him into, you know, his, he, yeah. he had the connections, because he was kind of the big name at the Lovecraft time. was his plus one. Exactly. And Lovecraft wrote in a letter uh, about this meeting. He said, uh, Merritt knows all about my work and praises it encouragingly. Yeah. So he was really... He's really happy that mm. that Merritt was really into the stuff. Mm. Now, uh, according to Joshi, that Moonpool really influenced Call of Cthulhu. There's a lot of similarities in the way that the structure of the story was. And one strange thing for all uh, Uber nerds out there, Gary Gygax uh, mentioned a Merritt. Gary Gygax, the, one of the creators of Dungeons and Dragons, the role-playing game. Right. He passed away. Just yeah, relatively recently, and he mentioned Merritt is his favorite fantasy author in really? the Dungeon Masters. So, hmm. that's, and, and Merritt died in 1943. Right on. Well, then why did I say that? That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> See, we normally record this, and then we and edit then we it, it out the stupid stuff. So I would have met, you would have never heard me say something idiotic. <laughs> we say a lot of really dumb stuff yeah. that gets cut out of the show, and fortunately for you tonight, you get to hear it all. Yeah, hear a lot of the dumb All stuff. of the really dumb stuff. Uh, well, we know Robert E. Howard pretty well. 
obviously. Yes. We kind of gave a mini bio of him. Uh, Lovecraft, we obviously know. And uh, Frank Belknap Long, we've mentioned many, many times. Yeah, show. I don't know how much detail. I'm going to just talk yeah. about uh, good old Frank again. Okay. He, now, he, was one, he didn't die until 1994. So yeah. he was a lot for quite some time. He was uh, born in 1901, so he was in his 90s. Uh, he was one of Lovecraft's closest friends. He was one of the guys in the in the the Callum uh, club that Lovecraft had in New York. He met him. He was like his kind of his best friend when he lived in New York. And one of the things that I was reading about is Long knew that Lovecraft was really depressed about living in New York. He just wasn't happy there at all. And he wrote a letter to Lovecraft's aunt saying, "You should really invite him back to Providence and come live with you because he's he won't." Like maybe he's too proud or he won't go back. Oh. And and they did it. And it was kind of his encouragement of them to kind of because they didn't know how bad he was doing because he wouldn't communicate right. that stuff to them. Having his suits stolen. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And uh, I mean he was a really good guy. Long also did revisions for DeCastro and Zelia Bishop, just like Lovecraft. So he worked for those guys as well. Okay. And Long and HP Lovecraft's correspondence is the biggest amount of correspondence. Of Lovecraft and anybody. So he wrote, the, the, and, he, and he corresponded a lot. A lot. Yes. Yeah. So wow. that's uh, that's good to know. That's sort of like finding out what was it uh, the longest piece of anything that Lovecraft ever wrote was a description of Vancouver or Toronto, Quebec. Canada. What was it? Quebec. Quebec. Oh, that's it. Quebec. Yes, yes. that's right. This long, longer than any of his uh, his fiction stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then now C.L. Moore, I assumed, was a, a man. When I read, yeah, I, I, I made the same assumption, but uh, wait, does anybody? Which means I'm sexist, I guess, right? You are. It's just initials. Absolutely, it's initials. Anybody know what CL stands for? Catherine Louise. Catherine Luce. Lucille. That's it. Yeah. Wait, who said? Who said that? Where are you? Stand up. Stand up, <laughs> sir. We're gonna get you a T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> Good job. You want a prize? You want a prize? Seriously, we're getting your T-shirt. That's awesome. I didn't think anybody would get that. That's yeah. awesome. Okay, great. Incredible. So Catherine Lucille, uh, she was born in 1911 and uh, died in 1987. Another fairly long-lived person. She yeah. was in Indianapolis. Never actually met Lovecraft in person, but uh, they corresponded from 34 to, until Lovecraft died in 37. Uh, he liked H.P. Lovecraft liked her stories. Uh, the Shamble Shambleu. What? Shambleu. Shambleu. I think it's a perfume. Oh. The ShamWow? The ShamWow? The ShamWow. Uh, you guys don't have ShamWows over here, do you? No. Uh, no. It's an American thing. Culture. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Black Thirst, that was another one for great stories, according to Lovecraft. And uh, they met when Arch Barlow wanted to publish some of her stories and asked H. he asked H.P. Lovecraft to write her because H. You know, Barlow was just a kid at the time and Lovecraft had some weight, so he said, hey, would you do a favor and see if we can publish some of her stuff? And so he did. And they corresponded. In fact, Lovecraft connected her with Henry Cudner in 36, and then eventually they met and got married. Lovecraft was a matchmaker. He was a matchmaker. Oh. Isn't that oh, so yeah. yeah. I didn't know that until I did the research. I just found out just now. Uh, it's good to know. He was, it was funny, too, because he kind of warded her off of doing pulps because he considered those... Uh, he didn't like pulp writing, and he thought it was terrible. And he goes, "Oh, don't, don't give in. It's easy money to do the pulps, but don't do them." I was gonna say he didn't like making money. Otherwise, <laughs> <laughs> people were buying. He didn't really. Uh, and then uh, she went on to write her big books were Judgment Night and Vintage Season later on in the fifties, I believe. All right, there you go. 
Cool. So those are the folks that were responsible for this. Now, uh, you talked a little bit about Julius Schwartz. The DC thing? Yeah, I didn't know about, but was it, he, he, well, he had something to do with Batman coming back? He, well, yeah, he did in the 60s. Uh, Julius Schwartz, I don't know if we mentioned before, but the, he, he sold at the Mountains of Madness and the Shadow Out of Time yes. on Lovecraft's behalf. Yeah. Uh, so he's sort of his agent. Yeah. In some respect. After doing this, he, got, he was really Lovecraft, and he said he convinced Lovecraft. Uh, it was at a party in New York. She goes, let me represent you, be your, your uh, agent or manager, or whatever they called it at the time. And doing so, he went and sold uh, at the Mountains of Madness to Ascending Tales for $350, which was you know, a pretty decent sum of money back then. And that was kind of it, really. He didn't really do... Yeah, okay, well you can tell me that he has something to do with no, but Lovecraft. But yeah, then he became the editor of All American Comics in 1944, which later evolved into DC Comics. And it was in 64 that he sort of took this old character, Batman, and kind of was pushing him into the mainstream again. So uh, he brought out Detective Comics and had Batman and stuff in there. So he was sort of responsible for that. And then in 71 to 86, he started doing more stuff with Superman and trying to get Superman popular again. And that was right before, I don't know how many comic book nerds we got out there, but uh, you remember in, right in 86, John Byrne took over and he kind of modernized Superman for the, for the 80s. So he was, you know, he was he wasn't a klutzy Clark Kent. He was kind of a handsome, cool journalist. And was he in a newscaster or something? Like no, no, he was still a newspaper okay. guy. But uh, he, uh, and that's when Lex Luthor became kind of the corporate uh, tycoon, as opposed to being the just crazy mad scientist that was mad at Superman for causing him to lose his hair. Right. That happened after he retired. Okay. So he had really nothing to do with that. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I just want to talk about that. I it all in that show. Uh, well, so do we, uh, is there anything else coming in from online? They really like Andrew's readings and they want me to do a live reading, full live reading at some point. Oh, oh, a full live reading. We'll consider that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll consider your suggestion. We'll consider that suggestion. All right. Uh, well, then, I, I mean, this. Uh, I, uh, first of all, I'm just really impressed that. Or surprised, I should say. Impressed. I was really surprised that we we had this sort of opportunity. Chad was coming out to visit me. It's the first time he's come to the UK to visit me. And Andrew was at a film festival in. It wasn't a film festival. It was a Lovecraft festival in Stockholm. It was a it was about a week of of uh, assorted events. It included a couple of film screenings, but it also included a live performance by Autumn Waite and the Amphibian Jazz Band. It included. A pub quiz night. It included an art exhibit by a cartoonist there. It included a bunch of different events, but they were all Lovecraft related. But it was just it just wrapped up on Saturday, Sunday. Sunday. Yeah. What were you? One of the things you were doing there. I mean, you're wearing. Uh, uh, no, nope, people oh, at, yeah. at home can't see this, but Andrew is wearing what looks like kind of a, a an asylum orderly smock. Yes. And, and your patch says Arkham Sanitarium staff. So if the readings tonight made anybody too frightened, too freaked out, you don't want to go back out into the dark night, yeah. this guy can... I brought uh, one of the things we're currently working on over at the HPLHS is the Arkham Sanitarium Sanity Assessment Kit, and I took uh, I took the current exist uh, the current prototype with me to Stockholm, and we did a little bit of playtesting. I happen to have it here in the room tonight, and uh, depending on uh, how much time we have and how yeah. much patience people have, yeah, we yeah. might be able to uh, to tap it some of that here. We're uh, going to bring people up one by one and do it now. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's just wait your turn. It's a very. Uh, it only takes about three hours, so yeah, yeah. definitely get all of you in. Yeah, very, very. But yeah, it's, it's, you had a good time out there. 
Yeah, it was a, it was a very good time. It was uh, a, a very nice fellow named Anders Lundgren organized the whole thing, and he really did a Herculean job. And Mike Dallager uh, knocked it out of the park as Ogham Waite. The amphibian jazz band was uh, terrific, and uh, yeah. it was quite an event. I think they're already planning to do another one in October. Oh. Wow, that's cool. I'm yeah. going to have to make it. Well, so Andrew said, hey, why don't you come out? And I said, well, you know, actually, I, I can't. Really, I just got a, a new baby, and it's being away for a whole weekend. It's going to be a long time. I go, but Chad's going to be in, uh, coming into town, too. And then Andrew goes, well, maybe you should. If you can't come to Stockholm, why don't I come to me? And I said, yes. And then Andrew had this idea about doing a live show. This is all Andrew's idea here. And I was like, well, Chad and I kind of talked about it a little yeah. bit. And then it just seemed to be this, because Chad already had planned his trip for a visit. Right. So just this weird con. It was less than a month. Yeah. We announced it less than a month before it happened. Mm -hmm. uh, and you and see you, all of the preparation. I was going to say, you've never guessed how well the show has gone. Yes. Well, you put it together so yeah. well. Clearly developed <laughs> intensive sessions. Exactly. In the car on the way over. But it, but, it, but it was a, some short notice, and it's, it's pretty crazy that you all showed up tonight. Yeah. On a Wednesday night in Leeds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea that we would get 50 people in, yeah. a, in a room on a Wednesday night in Leeds, and that's outstanding. It's really touching. Oh, it's ranking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the weather's it's a blizzard outside. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a blizzard, yeah. A blizzard. They said that on the BBC, by the way. <laughs> blizzard conditions this morning. <laughs> it was rather snowy. It was snowy. It was that impressive weather. Uh, so, and then I also want to thank uh, Paul, because Paul, it was Paul's idea to try and scream it over, over the internet, and mm -hmm. we were able to get Corn for the music, because Corn is the sound guy, he's got all the equipment and everything. So. And has been doing a bang-up job. Both of you guys have. Thank you so much for doing this. That concludes our coverage of the Challenge from Beyond, but not the live show in Leeds from April 4th. So next week we're going to have the Q&A. This weekend I will be in London at the Comica Comic Book Convention, supporting self-made heroes Lovecraft Anthology Volume 2. That evening there will be a live cabaret that I will be emceeing, which will have movies, music, and INJ Kalmbard doing a Lovecraftian Pictionary. I can't wait to check that out. And on Saturday, April 28th, I will be at the Traveling Man Comic Book Store in Newcastle, way up in Newcastle. Uh, doing signings for Lovecraft Anthology Volume 2 and do a short talk afterwards at 3 o'clock about adapting Lovecraft. So if you're in the Newcastle area, please come by and say hello. With that, I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. <laughs>